and welcome to Crashing the War Party, where I believe we have some of the bravest commentary on the air, given the level of righteous rebuke against anyone with an alternative point of view outside of the prescribed mainstream today. We will be talking, that's me and my co-host, Daniel Larison, to whistleblower, veteran, and sage foreign policy commentator Matthew Ho in the second half. But first, let's talk about Biden potentially visiting the Middle East. Apparently, he's trying hard to get OPEC to increase its oil production output faster as oil prices hit the roof this week, climbing past $120 a barrel as of as of Tuesday or Monday afternoon. Though he has yet to talk to him directly, the Biden administration may have to smooth the ruffled feathers of Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who felt slighted by the way that Biden has treated him uh, since he took office last year. As you'll recall, Biden called the regime a pariah for its ties to the murder and dismemberment of Jamal Khashoggi and has done its best to ice him out of visits and state courtesies. This hasn't stopped the administration from approving weapons sales to Riyadh, however. Nevertheless, it looks like MBS is in the Catburg seat as energy prices are climbing and Biden needs his help, particularly after he announced this week that he wanted to ban all of Russian oil imports to the United States, which is about 3% of all of our oil imports yearly. MBS, by the way, is doing a victory lap after a salivating profile in the Atlantic magazine, where he said of the U.S., quote, we don't have the right to lecture you in America. He said the same goes the other way, end quote. The news of a possible White House trip uh, comes on the heels of another report that the White House, uh, White House officials were headed to Venezuela to talk about restarting oil imports with Nicolas Maduro, who they say who they have actually treated as a pariah, backing his opposition and possible regime change while keeping crippling sages on their country, his country for a number of years now. So it seems the tables are turned. We need oil because of the crisis in Eastern Europe that we played a role in fomenting. And so now we are willing to talk to people that Biden was just last week denouncing as autocracies in his State of the Union address. Dan, what do you make of all of this? Well, so to start with, I think we're, what we're seeing is just the beginning of a lot of the the this, the consequences of waging an economic war on Russia, where we're going to have to start accommodating other states uh, much more than we have done uh, in order to to make up or to try to offset some of the economic damage that is going to uh, result uh, from waging that war. And I, I think the, these are some of the things that haven't really been thought through very much uh, on any side, uh, whether in our government or in any allied capitals, uh, and they haven't gained it out uh, very far at all. Uh, I think there's the hope that by imposing severe economic pain on the Russians that they can somehow force uh, a decision or force a conclusion to the conflict sooner. Uh, but I, I fear that where we're going to end up with just the opposite, we're going to end up with a Russia that ends up... Uh, adapting to these sanctions to, to try to, to press ahead with whatever their goals in Ukraine may be, uh, and will be scrambling uh, to deal with the fallout for a year or, or possibly uh, several years, and it's going to wreak a lot of havoc uh, with the economy in the meantime. Uh, specifically on the on the Saudi stuff, uh, I think it's, it's troubling that Biden is now rushing to, to 
try to go meet with the crown prince when he has made a point of not doing so before. Uh, although, as you say, the, the administration's policy has basically been business as usual with the Saudis and the UAE uh, for the last year. The, uh, the disturbing thing about the, the oil diplomacy with the Saudis is that they've proven many times in the past that they will act against U.S. interests with uh, the setting of the oil price, uh, depending on what they want to do for themselves. And so we shouldn't expect them to be uh, reliable or cooperative partners in this. Uh, we, we really don't have congruent interests with them when it comes to these things. They, of course, benefit from higher oil prices, uh, and they need uh, much higher oil prices than even the Russians do uh, because of uh, because of the, the system that they have. So uh, I'm, I'm not very optimistic that the, the Saudi angle is going to work. The, the Venezuela approach is interesting because it shows uh, how self-defeating in the end economic wars against these other countries really are. If we uh, had not had this economic war against Venezuela in place, Venezuelan oil imports uh, would already be offsetting some of this damage. Uh, we would already be able to rely on that. But because we were intent on forcing political change in Venezuela for the last several years, uh, even though it, it has completely failed, uh, where we've put ourselves in an awkward position where we now have to go begging to try to get access to these resources that previously we had we had ready access to uh, and that we deprived ourselves of. And so th there's an idea behind a lot of these economic sanctions programs that we're inflicting costs on the other side, but we're not actually paying any costs ourselves. And I think that the Venezuela example is showing that when you try to cut off another country, especially an important oil-producing country like Venezuela, from the rest of the economy in the world, uh, you, you end up shooting yourself in the foot. And so I, I would hope that that, together with the, the general failure of the economic war on Venezuela to achieve any real goals, would cause people to rethink the logic of using economic warfare in general. Uh, we've seen Venezuela put under crippling sanctions for many years now, uh, and the, the regime change goal has been pursued consistently for the last three years. And all that we've seen is the Maduro becoming stronger and more resilient in his hold on power. So what do we think is going to happen to Russia uh, when they have more resources to fall back on, when they have possibly even greater security interests at stake in their in their own mind. Uh, do we think that we're going to be able to bludgeon them into submission uh, using the same tools? I don't think so. Yeah, and I would only I, I'd only point to Iran, a, another example of the crippling sanctions that have been on that country for years, uh, particularly since uh, Donald Trump got out of the uh, JCPOA or the Iran nuclear deal in uh, 2018. And um, so we've had maximum pressure sanctions on that country, and they've only gotten stronger. And now they've elected a more hardline government. Uh, so you're you're absolutely correct. They have unintended consequences and don't seem to work. And from what I'm hearing, the sanctions that the Biden administration is rallying the, the globe against Russia are akin to the blockade that we uh, imposed on Japan right before World War II. There, th this is unparalleled in recent he history, the, the sanctions that we are enforcing against Russia today. So it is really unknown how, how this all ends. I mean, uh, the most optimistic view that you hear is that this will cripple 
Putin to the extent that it'll end the war. But like you said, Dan, um, there there's no guarantee that that's, that's what the outcome might be here. It might be that uh, we will crush Russia, we will crush Ukraine and have um, unexpected uh, impact on the global economy. You know, just to point out that Russia and Ukraine are known as the breadbasket of the world. And so a lot of food prices, the food um, the commodities that come out of Russia, Ukraine are going to be severely impacted. And that is going to have a domino effect on the rest of the world, particularly places even in the Middle East that uh, depend on uh, that food supply and are already suffering uh, from uh, the global uh, pandemic uh, hit that the economy took, but also drought and other uh, factors uh, that uh, that we don't necessarily feel here, but you know what? We're going to feel that too. And you know, I like many, many, many Americans go to the grocery store several times a week because I live in close proximity proximity to several stores. And I've noticed just your basics like ground meat and chicken and milk and eggs. And, and, and other things have like almost doubled in price. And this is before the Russia uh, crisis uh, and the, uh, the economic sanctions that are being deployed today. So I you know, drove into work today and I noticed a lot of uh, Ukrainian flags or you know, blue and yellow balloons in front of the restaurant downstairs. Uh, the Kennedy Center is lit up. Uh, with the Ukrainian blue and yellow every night I drive by there. And Americans are really responding to the the images that they're seeing on television. And, you know, I'm an American. I respond too. And I, I know how this how this movie goes. You know, we 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 jump right in emotionally uh, to these circumstances. We we root for the underdog. But I have a feeling that maybe Americans are going to, it's not that they're going to think differently about the circumstances, but they might be less hawkish in terms of promoting insurgencies and no-fly zones uh, when they realize that this thing might not be ending right away and that it is impacting their gas prices and their food prices and their ability to pay the rent. So um, I just, I, I, I feel that all of this talk about sanctions as being a panacea is just it's really way off. Right, when there's something that was interesting uh, in a book that I read recently, which is a Nicholas Mulder's The Economic Weapon, where there was a, an idea of using economic sanctions to punish aggression, like the aggression we've seen from Russia, uh, and that that was supposed to be, it was supposed to have a deterrent effect because it was so uh, crippling on a country that no country would dare try it. Of course, as we've seen, the, the Russians, or at least Putin, was willing to try uh, and and has open them up to that retaliation now. Uh, but the the flip side of using the economic weapon to harm uh, was to use economic assistance to support victims of aggression. And this is a model I think that really ought to be reconsidered more uh, as it relates to Ukraine, because of course their, their economy was already getting battered by war fears in the months leading up to the invasion. And of course now it's being uh, absolutely crushed because of the invasion itself. Uh, what what we ought to be looking at, I think, instead of finding ways to try to destroy someone else's economy, is to to look for ways to prop up Ukraine's economy financially and through through other means of assistance. Uh, and that, I think, would be uh, far more constructive and would actually demonstrate real solidarity with them 
uh, rather than uh, carrying out some sort of uh, vindictive uh, policy that mostly harms ordinary Russians, who, of course, as we know, had no knowledge of what was happening in the, the upper reaches of their government. They had no idea this invasion was coming uh, and certainly didn't consent to it. And so uh, instead of opting for collective punishment, uh, we should start thinking about ways uh, to demonstrate solidarity for uh, for Ukraine that don't involve uh, punishing innocent people. And, th- and that I think that ought to be the, the direction that we go in. Uh, of course, now now that the sanctions are in place, it'll be extremely difficult to get them removed. This, this is another reason why I'm generally very uh, hostile to, to broad sanctions, because once they're in place, it becomes uh, almost impossible to lift them, because once you start talking about lifting them, then you are supposedly rewarding the bad actor that you're targeting. Uh, and if you think of it in those terms, then you can never really get out of the economic warfare that you started. Uh, in fact, we, we've even seen in some of the hawkish reactions to Biden's outreach to Venezuela that even when it may be in our interest to lift these sanctions, at least temporarily, uh, there, there's tremendous resistance to any even slightest easing of them because that will, quote unquote, reward the dictator. And if if your concern is only with what these sanctions are doing or not doing to the dictator, then we, we oughtn't to be imposing them in the first place because, in fact, these sanctions do very little to harm the dictators. They, they do everything to harm the people under their rule. And, and, we need, and that's what we need to understand about them. And I, I fear that, once again, we, we have missed that uh, in our response to the Russian invasion. Uh, and, and I fear we're going to keep missing it with our other economic wars as well. Another thing that I do fear as well is the the primacists in Washington are doing a little victory dance now or feeling really good about themselves because they feel like, well, you know, now that the U.S. and the Biden administration has taken this lead role in condemning and punishing Putin, this just shows that we need to have a U.S.-led world order, that, that the U.S. must take a strong lead in um, maintaining that order. And, you know, on one hand, you know, you and I are sitting here going, you know, or rolling our eyes or saying, well, this is what got, this is what gets us into these, you know, crises to begin with, that kind of attitude. But it is very interesting how the United States is able to work all of these levers and bully and coerce other countries into working their own levers that are interconnected with the global economy and just shut things down and punish a country. I mean, it is it is unprecedented and awesome, you know, and not the good sense of the word that we are able to punish another country in such a way that we couldn't have done this a century ago. I mean, this is post-globalism. This is this is a way of just basically cutting a, a country off from all of its vital uh, resources, like with a switch. And that makes me a little nervous. I feel I, you know, and I understand that, you know, Russia in this case has violated international law. They were being a bully. They are being bullies towards their neighbors. But I feel like we can take that bully like, and, and bring it up a notch like you wouldn't believe just by snapping our fingers. And I think other countries are probably taking notice of that. 
And this might give primuses a little boost. They're going to be like, see, you know, uh, you know, we are on the right side of history. We are the democracies. We know what's right for the rest of the world. And we have the power to back that up. So don't mess with us. Right. Well, I mean, the, the danger with any state or group of states having that kind of power is that, of course, it can always be misused. I mean, just as the, the current economic war on Russia has dealt a huge blow against them, uh, the, the economic war on Iran has done enormous harm to their economy as well. Uh, but but I think it's widely acknowledged that the economic war that's been going on since 2018 is basically an illegitimate one that was being done for the wrong reasons. It was being done to achieve uh, absurd goals. Uh, and the, most other countries realized that the U.S. was off on the wrong track doing it. Uh, but there was really nothing that other countries could do to stop it because of our preeminent position and because having access to our markets is still so important uh, for all other countries. And so the the use of that weapon uh, kind of carelessly uh, shows just how, how dangerous it can be. And it, it all depends on who happens to be in charge of our government at a given time. Uh, can, you know, can you actually trust our government to have that kind of power year in and year out when you may end up with uh, much worse precedence uh, than the one we have right now. And so that that's one concern. Uh, and then the other thing to, to bear in mind is that the, the more that weapons like this get used against other countries uh, to devastating effect, uh, the more incentive that creates for other states to create alternative structures and to get out right. from under their dependence on uh, the U.S. and, and, to, and to break the hegemony of the dollar. And in the long term, that's going to actually weaken the U.S. position. So you have these people who are kind of high on our own uh, power, uh, who are actively working to undermine it over the longer term uh, by, by overusing it and by abusing it. And so you know, that's, that's where I think you're going to see an actual hastening towards a more multipolar system, uh, because the people who are most enthusiastic about enforcing our hegemony are doing everything they can to break it. We are proud to have Matthew Ho join us on Crashing the War Party today. In 2009, Matthew resigned in protest from his post in Afghanistan with the State Department over the American escalation of the war prior to his assignment in Afghanistan, Matthew took part in the American occupation of Iraq first in 2004 and five uh, with the State Department Reconstruction and Governance Team. And then in 2006 to 2007 in Ambar province as a Marine Corps company commander. When not deployed, Matthew worked on Afghanistan and Iraq war policy and operations issues at the Pentagon and State Department from 2002 to 2008. Since then, Matthew's writings have appeared in online and print periodicals such as the Atlantic Journal-Constitution, Counterpunch, CNN, Defense News, The Guardian, Huffington Post, Mother Jones, USA Today, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, and more. And he's been a regular guest on hundreds of news programs on radio and television, including BBC, CBS, CNN, all the big ones. In 2010, 
He was named the Ridenhauer Prize recipient for truth-telling and in 2021 was awarded as a Defender of Liberty by the Committee for the Republic. Um, he's also running for Senate in North Carolina, I believe. So I am very, very excited to have Matthew on the show today to talk about foreign policy and all sorts of good things. Um, Matthew, thank you for coming on the show. Hey, thank you, Kelly, and it's good to be with you, Dan. And and uh, yeah, I gotta get it. I gotta get a shorter bio for people to read. That's I don't. <laughs> no one needs to have to listen to all that. I'm sorry. Well, <laughs> no, I mean you have a lot to be proud of. I mean your service in the military, your service with the uh, State Department, um, the fact that you were a dissenter. And I remember, I think that's the first time that I had spoken to you was after you wrote that wonderful letter. Uh, was It was an open letter uh, in the Washington Post? No, it, it was a resignation letter. It went to the director of the Foreign Service and um, uh, it, got, it got circulated around quite a bit. And, and I was still in Zabal province in Afghanistan. And a couple of days after I submitted it, up through the embassy back to Washington, D.C., I got a phone call from uh, actually an ex-girlfriend of mine who worked with Ambassador Holbrook, you know, as the regular Monday morning meeting. And uh, Ambassador Holbrook wants to know who this Matt Ho person is and, you know, wants to meet him. And he's going to send this resignation letter to President Obama and to Secretary Clinton, and which he did. Um, and, uh, you know, and it just became this thing. Uh, and then uh, about a month after I had gotten home, from uh, Afghanistan and gotten out of the State Department, I called the Washington Post after I had randomly met a Washington Post editor um, who encouraged me to do so because I wanted to write an opinion piece. I wanted to write an op-ed piece saying, this is why I resigned. This is why we shouldn't escalate the war. And it turned into like this 3,500 word uh, <laughs> profile and courage, you know, kind of thing <laughs> that I was not expecting. And yeah, that's how I got to know you. And here we are 12 years later. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't emphasize enough that at that point, since, you know, it's how many years later, more of a decade, more than a decade later, most of the world and most of America is, has been resigned to the fact that Afghanistan was a failure and mm -hmm. that we were being lied to every step of the way by our military leaders, by our politicians, by, you know, our uh, other elected officials and administration that everything, that victory was right around the corner and that counterinsurgency was working or could work if we only put some more troops in on, on the ground. But at the point in which you dissented and you uh, quit and then explained why you quit, that wasn't a popular thing to do at that time. That was at the onset of the Obama administration, right? where counterinsurgency was all of the rage and which there still was this big belief that uh, counterinsurgency, if done right, could work in Afghanistan, that we would be able to rebuild that country. So I, as far as I'm concerned, you were one of the, the few brave ones that actually sacrificed something to, to make a stand against this war. Well, thank you. And uh, there are a lot of people who didn't agree with it. I think a lot of people have my perspective uh, in the military, intelligence and diplomatic communities. And I could tell you different stories of all the people who agreed with me. And um, I mean, one, I, I knew the guy who was the uh, State Department representative to NATO. 
And, you know, so he worked with the four star at NATO and everything else. And he said when General McChrystal's plan went around in the summer of 2009 at NATO headquarters, uh, you know, to escalate the war and to win the war through counterinsurgency, no one agreed with it, Jack said. He said no one agreed with it. But when it came time to check the box initial and forward it on to the next person, everyone did it. You right. know, so there's a lot of that. I mean, just, uh, um, you know, all levels. Uh, I could tell you now that the two people who helped me write that letter, because I wrote it and I sent it to two friends of mine, um, you know, does this make sense to you guys? Uh, one of them had been the assistant to uh, the ambassador in Afghanistan just a year or two prior. And the other, the previous year, had been the uh, Marine Corps Intelligence Officer of the Year for his work in Afghanistan. So the two people who helped me write this thing had had that direct involvement and experience. Wow. They had both been in Iraq as well. They were both highly regarded, you know, and, and um, you know, they were both, one will become a general and the other one will become an ambassador. They're both still in, you know, and, and so, and, and then we could be here all day talking about all the different people who agreed um, and it went, but the, the political momentum the senior levels was for this. And, and everyone was pointing to, well, look at Iraq, look how successful it is in Iraq. It's worked in Iraq. And it's, it's like, no, what, what's happening in Iraq has got nothing to do with creating these small little outposts and building schools and wells for people. It's got everything to do with answering the grievances of the Sunni people, you know, uh, something that of course fell apart uh, right after 2012, when the Sunnis were effectively shut out of the Iraqi government again, which anyone who understood the situation would tell you this is what's going to happen. You know, so um, that's what was occurring in Afghanistan was this this emphasis on this tactical level of we're going to get out on the streets. We really there aren't many streets in southern and eastern Afghanistan. We're going to get out in the villages and patrol and we're going to build things. And because we're going to give these people money, they're going to abandon um, their uh, beliefs. They're going to abandon their uh, 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 their families. They're going to abandon the sides that they have been on in what at this point was like a 30 year long civil war, just because we're going to come in and we're going to be nice. And of course, the, the counter to that was the counter terror strategy that Petraeus wanted to do, and which he got a chance to do when he took over after McChrystal, which was we're going to we're going to break these people. We're going to terrorize them and break them. And of course, that didn't work either. And here we are now in 2022 uh, with the, the, the unbelievable uh, catastrophe of the last uh, four plus decades in Afghanistan. But also to the, the fact that as as uh, as I think a lot of people understand, war never ends. It just it just transitions to a new phase. And that's what we're seeing right now. So I, I imagine that you weren't too surprised when The Washington Post published the Afghanistan papers, because it sounds like that you were talking to all the people who had been quoted in the Afghanistan papers since 2009. You know, the, the very fact that there are people who agreed with you that agreed that counterinsurgency wouldn't work back in 2009, but never said anything. Uh, I mean, that speaks uh, volumes of, um, you know, the Washington culture and the military culture as well. But I mean, yeah, I mean, that must have been like, I'm, I'm glad that the Afghanistan papers were published and it outed all of these people uh, for their, their cowardice, for not like saying these things publicly. But I, I would imagine that, you know, you were in a unique position to like hear all of these private conversations all the way. It must've been very frustrating for you. Well, it was, uh, um, you know, actually when those, when that came out in December of 2019 um, by the Washington Post, 
you know, our friend Scott Horton uh, has his podcast. And so he immediately had me and then a couple others that fo- folks are familiar with Danny Davis and Danny Sturgeson on, you know, and there was no triumphalism, right? There was no like, yeah, we were right, you know, kind of, no, it was really just sadness and anger, you know, and that, I think that's the divine, that's defining emotions for all of this, the sadness and the anger. Um, I think so much of it is that, uh, many of the decision makers are able to leave this behind. Um, they are not directly involved in the war. They're certainly not Afghans. They're certainly not Iraqis. They're certainly not Libyans, et cetera, et cetera. But even as Americans, many of them have no uh, uh, skin in the game, so to speak. And so to, for them to leave it behind, and, and he also has to ha- have to understand who a lot of these people are. Uh, the careerism that defines them, um, and they get to a certain point, and there's a, a megalomania. That mm-hmm. exists. Uh, I mean, I, I think that is best described. If you go back to around 2016 or so, uh, Michael Vickers, who was a special oper- in charge of special operations and low intensity conflict for the Obama Pentagon, um, you know, he wrote this op-ed in the Washington Post. And you can clearly see that where he talks about how Syria was our best chance to bring down the Iranian regime. Right. This idea that we are going to help this with this war in Syria, we are going to use the Syrian people. And if 600,000 of them are killed and millions are made refugees, so be it, because we have a higher purpose in bringing down the regime in Tehran. You know, what I mean, so that type of megalomania you see and whether it exists on a level where it's just personal, uh, a man like David Petraeus, who let's remember, he had a whole cast of characters in D.C. who were actively pushing multiple times for him to get a fifth star. I mean, yep. that's, I think, the level we have to realize these people are. Like, that was his goal was to get a fifth star. I really believe that, right? Um, you know, he wants to be uh, this next generation of warfare, this current generation of warfare. He wants to go in the annals as, uh, you know, the, the, the Eisenhower of his day or whatever. So, um, you know, you have that. But then you also have, like, the, the megalomania that exists where it's the, uh, you know, a kind of like on that max boot kind of level or Michael Vickers level where they see the world as one big game of risk. Uh, they feel like they can be the next Zygmunt Brzezinski, uh, right? And then have this chessboard that they are commanding like they're uh, the Dulles brothers or something. Um, and, and of course, the the idea that somehow that real people are being destroyed never occurs to these people because there's a degree of psychopathy that exists in all these people as well that we can't say, oh, that's not a nice thing to say. We have to recognize that as, as the case. And then, of course, there's, as everyone know, the institutional uh, pressures. Uh, you know, when, when you've got a, a military uh, war uh, machine that is 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 more than a trillion dollars a year. I mean, the institutional pressure, the, the momentum of that, the inertia of that is massive. So, uh, you know, all those things combined, you can kind of understand how, okay, how people were willing to go along to get along, even though it meant, uh, you know, the destruction of countless, countless lives uh, in these in these just, uh, you know, cruel and greedy and, and stupid wars. Absolutely, Matt. And thanks for coming on the show. Uh, we uh, really appreciate having you here. Uh, and speaking of the the destruction, the, the destruction is still ongoing in Afghanistan, as as we all know, uh, because of the liquidity crisis and sanctions. Mm. Uh, Afghanistan's economy has been in freefall for months, uh, and the entire population is falling into poverty uh, this year. Uh, I think the estimate will be ninety seven percent will be falling below the poverty line. Uh, uh, what policies does the Biden administration need to change to avert the worst case scenario of widespread famine? Uh, uh, do you do you think that they are going to try to make those changes, or are they uh, simply going to wash their hands of the situation? 
I think they're going to try and ignore it, Dan. Uh, I mm-hmm. think they're going to try and ignore it, and, and they're going to. Um, uh, I think it's a, a what with Ukraine, with what's occurring in Ukraine right now, and and, and other things. I think that the attention is not there, and so the idea that we get to the springtime and not so many of them will be freezing and starving to death any longer, and woo, we 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 really got past this terrible public relations. Uh, miss opportunity, you know, it's public relations disaster, I think is how they would look at it. Um, I mean, there's been outright theft, um, you know, as the Intercept reported, uh, one of the leading um, figures in the White House who was uh, leading Afghan policy, uh, you know, went back to his law firm in January. And then in February, that law firm took control over the whole process of taking the Afghan uh, of foreign reserves over, right? That's $7 billion that the United States is in effect stealing from the Afghan people. You know I mean? So there's, there's a level of corruption and, and crookedness to this that I think is in line with uh, the 40 plus years of war. You know, the policies, would, would, the policy changes have to be uh, immediate and they have to be uh, a, 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 a very, def- uh, uh, very uh, uh, determinative, you know, so it's things such as reopening diplomatic, opening dem- diplomatic relations, uh, reopening an embassy. I mean, you have to have those things present. You have to have those people present in order to effectively have the administration of aid that's required to avert the tragedy that is, well, not avert it, but to mitigate it at this point uh, that is ongoing, you know? And then of course, um, you know, the an ending of the sanctions and ending of, of all the various mechanisms we have in place, which prohibit uh, very, all the various aspects of commerce, finance, uh, logistics, et cetera, that are the reasons for this tragedy. I think though also too, the Biden administration has to take responsibility for it. You know, I mean, this this crisis didn't just occur because the Taliban took over. You know, the year before the Taliban took over, the World Food Program, so in 2020, the World Food Program had listed uh, Afghanistan as the second most food insecure nation in the world. Uh, That summer, in the summer of 2020, Ashraf Ghani said that, you know, who who was the president of Afghanistan, 90% of his people were living below the poverty line. So this already was a tragedy that was just um, that was being sustained, though, by the hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars that were continuing to flow into Afghanistan from the United States. So it was really, you know, the house of cards. This was the table that was supporting the house of cards. And then, of course, this past year, that table was removed in the house of cards came down. So, I mean, it's certainly, I don't think it's very complicated what needs to be done. Uh, the only complication is whether the political will is there and whether the White House will choose to do the right thing. I mean, for decades, how I many decades did successive White Houses say, we are doing this because of the Afghan people. We are doing to support the Afghan people. And now when they have the opportunity to truly and really support the Afghan people, they choose to not do it for just because they're afraid that they're going to get heckled by uh, commentators uh, on Fox News or in the Washington Post. Well, and we've heard that refrain many times uh, regarding countries that have been placed under broad sanctions before that, mm-hmm. uh, where there will be uh, crippling, uh, uh, essentially economic blockades imposed on countries, whether it's Venezuela or Iran or now Syria. Uh, and all of this will be justified as being uh, in support of the people living there, when of course they're the ones bearing the brunt of it. Uh, broad sanctions always harm innocent people uh, in the countries that are targeted for punishment mm-hmm. the most. 
Um, and I, I feel we're already seeing the same thing happening in the economic war against Russia that has just right. begun. Um, uh, what reforms to sanctions policy uh, do you think the U.S. needs to make? Uh, can can uh, sh- should we simply uh, push for for ending the use of economic warfare like this as a policy tool? I think so. I think so. I mean, uh, at the very minimum, moratorium on sanctions. I I, I would say just to a- a- at least give the idea or the the semblance that you're doing some kind of review. Uh, I mean, because they've not been effective. Show me where they've been effective. You know, I mean, I actually did see a list. Of, uh, of of sanctions in this in the I can't remember where it was, but there were th- they, they they mentioned three instances of sanctions being effective. Uh, two of them were in the 1920s, and one of them with right. with the Suez crisis in the 1950s. I mean, so you're going back 70 years, right, to find a sanction program that worked, and majority of the time, if not always, they cause immense suffering for the people, and that suffering in turn then does not do what these supposed realists in Washington, D.C. claim it does, does the opposite. It actually increases support for the government, pushes people towards more hardline politicians in those countries, gives them more of a nationalist spirit, if you will, uh, uh, sees, makes them see clearly the United States is the enemy because the United States is blockading this country. I mean, it's no different than if we put our warships in their harbor, right, and prevented ships from coming in and out. It's the same. It, 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 it's an economic blockade and it's an act of war. And the idea that, again, we have realists in this country, in Washington, D.C., who don't understand that just shows how phony so much of the whole foreign policy establishment is. But, yeah, no, I mean, in terms of I I, I don't know if there's a sanctions program uh, that I, I support. I mean, certainly, um, I think if you're even talking about sanctioning um, individuals, I think there's better ways to go about it than this idea that you're going to sanction specific political leaders. I mean, I, I think certainly if you were to, I would uh, advocate for uh, the United States joining the International Criminal Court and pursuing efforts legal in, under international law against uh, these leaders, then claiming that you're going to sanction these people directly and it's somehow going to have an effect. First of all, no one who's in a position of power uh, like these people are we're talking about have not already put layers around themselves and protected themselves against the sanctions. I mean, so the whole thing is kind of, it's it's really theater in a lot of ways, I think, uh, except for uh, the common people in these countries, the working people in this country, who in those countries who are so directly affected and suffer because of them. When I... Uh, you mentioned the, those examples from the 20s of uh, ostensible sanction successes, and I remember reading about that just recently in the new book uh, on uh, called The Economic Weapon by Nicholas Mulder, where he talks about those cases, uh, I think, involving uh, Yugoslavia and then again uh, Bulgaria and Greece, right? Mm-hmm. And in those cases, it wasn't actually even the imposition of sanctions, but the threat of sanctions that actually worked. Uh, when Once sanctions are imposed, uh, Governments will tend to to adapt to them. Will tend to just sort of absorb the blow. Uh, it, it's only when countries really value their relationships with the sanctioning governments that they are in any way intimidated by this threat. Uh, with with adversaries, especially authoritarian adversaries, they they tend to be almost completely useless. Right. Um, and and that's I mean that's been the the record that we've seen over the last century. Um, and it, and it is it really is economic blockade as the that book points out. Uh, Modern economic sanctions derive directly from the practice of the blockade that was right. used in World War One, and and it was imp- and the the interesting thing about the early 
support for economic sanctions during the interwar period is that the the advocates for it understood that it was targeting the population they they thought it was valuable because it targeted the population and they thought it would generate some kind of political change but now we we know over a century of trying it that 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 inflicting pain on a population does not lead them to rise up against their government uh, it causes just the opposite uh, switching gears just quickly for one last question uh, the the war in ukraine is obviously a, a disaster for ukraine and russia and and europe right. more broadly uh, how concerned are you that the U.S. and its allies will end up being drawn into the war? Uh, and what would your preferred policy for the U.S. be right now? Well, yeah, I mean, my preferred policy would to build a time machine and go back and undo a lot of this, right? You know, I mean, yeah. like, right? I mean, like, my preferred policy would have not been, you know, to follow the advice of so many um, uh, foreign policy commentators and experts and retired diplomats in the '90s and, and early part of the century, and not push against Russia. And I would say the same with China. I mean, we're heading the same direction with China. Again, these realist thinkers, as they call themselves, they keep using these really absurd and insipid analogies of you got to stand up to the bully on the playground. And it's just it's not even close to any being accurate. You know, you push against these countries and they are going to push back. Uh, again, that's what history teaches us. And that's what these specific countries are telling us as well through their actions. So I, I think that would be the first thing is to build a time machine. But, but you know, I mean, I, I am afraid. I know, I know uh, this has is, is been widely uh, shared and you're seeing it now. People are saying it out loud, uh, including uh, political leaders in this country, that Afghanistan is the model for how we should handle this, that we should all, you know, and and I, I believe there were people in D.C. who felt this way for a long time now that, OK, yeah, if we can sucker the Russians into Ukraine, we can get them stuck in an insurgency. Uh, they will bleed out financially. And then the, the effects of it um, in terms of politics in Russia will be devastating with Russians going home in body bags. And of course, because there's this hubris that exists, they believe they can control it. We can control it. We learned, I mean, I, we learned the lessons of Vietnam. We learned the lessons of Central America. We learned the lessons of Iraq. We learned the lessons of Afghanistan. This time we'll get it right. I mean, this is the type of stuff we hear, you know, and that they actually say and that they believe that we can control the war in Ukraine. And I'm very worried about that. And of course, I'm very worried about just the knife said that, that we're on uh, this idea that, um, uh, you know, it's very easy to one of the things I, I'm sure you guys know this, too, as well. So many people in D.C. are not students of history. Uh, and if they the history they read will be like a hagiography of of Ronald Reagan or Bill Clinton, like that's their history. Right. You know, um, uh, you know, that they read. So uh, the, their understanding of escalation, how escalation occurs and how escalation quickly gets out of hand, uh, you know, and let alone now in this modern era where within a day an escalation within a day can mean the, the end of human civilization. You know, and this I so that the, the the continued cheering for a no fly zone without having any idea of what that actually means. I, I, you know, I'm amazed at the number of commentators who say, "Oh, wait, a no fly zone means you used missiles and artillery as well." You know, and like no concept of what it actually means it means that missiles will be launched from inside Poland, inside Romania, inside Germany, inside Russia, because their S-400s will launch from Russia and they'll shoot down American planes that are over Ukraine or potentially over Poland or whatever it is. No, they have no concept of what they're talking about. And but meanwhile, it keeps being spoken about 
as if it, there's a, a, a common understanding of that term in that there's no downside to it, there's no complication, there's no, no nuance. So, you know, I'm very concerned about how, as many people are, how easily this can escalate um, to a point where, um, yeah, we, we, are, we are now uh, getting ready to throw our, as they say, usable nuclear weapons around. And where does that go from there then? Wow. On uh, that note, I think we have to wrap <laughs> up because we've run out of time. But uh, yeah, I mean, we hadn't even get into the whole issue of the nuclear threat in this situation. And uh, so we'd like to have you back on the show at some point, Matthew. Thank you so much for joining us and, and sharing your story with us. Absolutely. Hey, thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.